Yeah? Yeah. Uh, we're doing how, how to study the Bible, right? Right. Uh, isn't that a song from Camelot? Okay, what is that? Oh, no, that's how to handle a woman. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> okay. oh, oh, that's rough. That's rough. How to handle the Bible. That's right. That's good. Yeah, good. All right, okay. I think you better play. <laughs> Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We certainly praise you. We bow before you this morning and thank you that you are God and there is no other, that you've revealed yourself in the way that you have. And Father, we're thankful that your Son, who dwelled in your bosom from all eternity, came to us to exegete you, to us, to a watching world. And Father, we're thankful that he made known the way of salvation and that it is in himself. And we're we just pause before you to acknowledge the greatness of your work on our behalf and ask that you will deepen our understanding of it. But we're also thankful for your word, that you revealed it, that you inscripturated it, and you gave it to your people for their sure comfort and, Lord, for the preservation of the truth. Father, we ask now that you'll bless us and strengthen us by grace. We pray that your hand will be upon us for good. And Father, we certainly give you thanks for the report we heard about Greg and Karen and pray for their continued recovery and health. Lord, we also pray for um, Ted and Sig as they uh, will say a few words tomorrow uh, about uh, our departed brother. And we're thankful for his life and for their willingness to speak about him publicly. And Father, we just pray that you'll bless them and give them uh, emotional resolve and the ability to speak before the people about uh, one they loved. And uh, Lord, as we remember Dick, uh, even now we're thankful for his life. Father, we pray for Daniel and his family and their loss and pray that you would continue to comfort them and to be with them. Father, we ask now that you'll uh, be with us as we study your word and ask that your hand would be upon us for good and that your spirit would be among us, leading us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, this morning we are going to look at how to study the Bible. I, I'll tell you a little bit of background about this, uh, this study. When I was, uh, not, not too long ago, I, I mentioned to my congregation that I was going to have a a study on how to study the Bible, and I was going to talk to some, uh, in particular, I was going to talk to some of the youth in the congregation, and it struck me how many adults came out for the Bible study, and um, it was interesting to me because after a, a lesson or two, um, the, uh, the youth uh, were hanging in there, and the adults said to me, this is not, this is funny, they, they came up to me and said, this is not a study for young people. As if to say to me, this is way beyond them. And the youth were saying to me, 
<clears throat> oh yeah, we get this. This is you know, and I did. I think they did get it. I think they were trapping with it. And wow. uh, so anyway, um, I decided to foist it upon you, and to see uh, <laughs> to see how you hang in there. And uh, so I do think that uh, it's an. I do think that a study like this is important. And uh, and I'll tell you why I think it's important because uh, when we think about um, when we think about uh, a variety of different things. When we think about, for instance, the Protestant position on the scriptures, we think about private interpretation. We think about how we have the Bible in our hands and we are to read it and understand it, study it. But we also, um, we, when you migrate into more reform circles, what you find is you find that there's an emphasis on the nature of the Bible it's infallible, it's an, iner- it's an inerrant book, and, and so it's authoritative and all those things. We'll talk about those things. But when you think about those kinds of things, one of the things that you realize is that uh, if you kind of step back and take a look around, you realize that the Reform Camp teaches a lot about the nature of Scripture, but not a lot about how to study the Bible itself. Um, it's almost as if we say, uh, this is a very important book, and this is why. Here you go. Start reading it. And uh, we don't give a lot of thought or instruction in how to study it. And in fact, when you look at the evangelical church in general, um, some of you are looking at me like you're a little perplexed, but the reason for that is uh, you're saying to me, um, at least in your, some of your faces, I see, I see Ted looking at me, and... Uh, Browning. And, uh, and, and, uh, and that's because if you do go into the, to the Christian bookstore, uh, one of the things that you can find quite a bit of are books on studying the Bible. And uh, so the evangelical church has oftentimes been ahead of the game in terms of teaching how to study the scriptures. Um, and so you may or may not have experience with this, and, and in fact, uh, kind of curious, Ted, are you, are you, was your frown in, a, in, a, in agreement or disagreement, or where are you at? I, I just, not that you, I just, not that you. I wince a bit with a thing of private interpretation. Ah, yes, of course you do. We wouldn't have 20 to 30,000 denominations. Well, uh, you know, you know what Luther said to that when he was criticized for that. He said, I'd rather have 20,000 denominations uh, rather than one church that's wrong so often. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Was there 30,000 denominations when you were walking around? 20 to 30,000. No, I mean, in Luther's day. No. There was not. No. It was a joke. It was a joke. All right, well, so let's, uh, what I want us to do is look at this uh, topic, and I want us to start by acknowledging that what we have here is a big book, 66 books altogether, and uh, one of the things that we need to take on board is the fact that this is a big book, and oftentimes when you're honest about it, people are honest about it, they look at this particular book and they don't know where to begin, they oftentimes read it as if it were a novel. You open it up and you begin reading through it. And by the time you get to numbers, you're so tired of numbers that you end up being exasperated and stop reading it. Or if you persevere through the first five books and then eventually get into the history, 
then you're a little excited about what's happening, but then oftentimes people run into the profits and they're not so excited anymore. So oftentimes there's a bit of, uh, there's a bit of, you okay? Hey. My battery died. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's a bit of uh, wear and wane to this whole idea of reading the scriptures. But oftentimes people will say to me, once they get into the Old Testament, they'll say, I don't know where to begin because it doesn't seem to be going in a chronological direction. And they're right. It doesn't seem to be going in a chronological direction. And so what do you have? You have Bibles that are chronological Bibles and Bibles that try and give you the chronological flow of the story. So we need to begin by acknowledging, I don't think this is a hard acknowledgement. We need to begin by acknowledging that this is a big book. Um, Calvin and Hobbes, uh, I don't know if you can read this or not, I'll read it to you. Calvin's mom says, here Calvin, you got a letter in the mail. I did, he says. Gosh, I never get mail. I wonder who sent this. There's no return address. In its place, there's a crude human skull with X's for eyes and its tongue hanging out. Maybe it's the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> so what's Calvin doing at this point? What's Calvin doing? Well, Calvin at this point is asking a basic question. He's asking the question that we all ask when we look at the mail or when we look at the books of Scripture. He's asking, what kind of letter is it? What kind of document is it? What kind of letter was Calvin looking at? What kind of book are we looking at when we open up to Genesis? What kind of book are we looking up when we open up to the prophets? You okay? No, I just sneezed. Yeah. Don't do it very often. <laughs> you came forward, though, and I, no, I was concerned about it. I'm kind supportive of the So if you were to look at that stack of mail for a minute, my guess is that you would be able to identify different types of mail without even knowing what those kinds of mail were. For instance, you'd look at, I forget that the, uh, the, uh, the button doesn't work, but you could look at some of that mail, for instance, the very top letter with the yellow uh, on the inside, and then it was trimmed with, uh, with the red, and you'd look at that, and if you're like me, you would say, that's junk mail. You could identify the junk mail, you could also identify cards. You could identify cards, that are birthday cards, Christmas cards, those kind of things. You could identify bills easily. You, you know, when you go down to the mailbox, you don't even have to think about it. You know what you're holding in your hand. You know what is what. And what you're doing when you do that is you are basically looking at, so I'm, you are basically looking at what we call genres. And a genre is a different, it's a kind of literature. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a sort of thing that you determine, for instance, every time you go to the mailbox, you hold your, uh, your mail in your hand and you see, I've got a magazine there. I've got a bill there. I've got junk mail there. I've got, you know, you go on. You know it immediately. And the point is, when you hold the Bible in your hand, when you hold the Bible in your hand, um, not everyone automatically knows what it is they're holding in their hand. Um, they think they're holding in their hand one big book. 
that they can read from beginning to end. And then they start and they realize that's not the way it is. But we can do this not just with mail, but I want you to think about your favorite books. Um, what, what kind of genre is that? Murder uh, mystery. Yeah, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. What about that? What kind of genre? Murder mystery. Murder mystery. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody else? <laughs> Come on, just by the t just by the book cover, you know. Fantasy. Yeah, fantasy. fantasy. Sword and sorcery guy. And how about that? Oh, uh, western. western. You better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a western. Hondo. Who can? You know, I put that there because you get you get both John Wayne and you get Louis L'Amour writing. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Now, each of those genres cries a way of reading, right? You're not going to pick up a fantasy novel and read it the way you would read a Western. You're going to have different expectations. Or you're not going to pick up a Harry Potter book and read it the same way you would pick up a, a, a John Grisham book. You're not going to, for instance, expect somebody to pull out a wand and cast a spell in a John Grisham book the way you are in a Harry Potter book. There are different expectations about the genre. And that's just basic, and I think that we take that for granted. For instance, you, when you think about, uh, when you think about uh, rules of the game, that's another way to think about this. Um, what that uh, basketball player is obviously not doing something right, right? <laughs> Uh, according to the rules of the game, and we know just by looking at him, we see him on a basketball court in a basketball uniform, and as soon as we see him kick the ball, we say to ourselves, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Because he's not playing according to the rules of the game. So again, we're, what are we doing? We're working with a genre of a game. The rules of the game for that particular game require that guy not to touch the ball with his feet. And, uh, you know, we all know this particular game, and, uh, and we're all going to judge by the rules whether that guy is out of bounds when he releases the ball, you know? It's that sort of thing that we're engaged in. There are rules to interpreting the game, just like there are certain rules to reading literature, whether it's Western and so on. And the Bible has rules. It has genres and it has rules. And when we read it, we're supposed to be playing by the rules. And in fact, we try and play by the rules when we read the Bible because uh, that's what the Bible expects of us. Let me tell you, I'll give you one, uh, I'll give you an example of how we oftentimes don't play by the rules when we come to the scriptures. For instance, we'll take a prophet, okay, and we'll lift something out of the prophets, or uh, better yet, we'll lift something out of one of the historical books. And we'll take that, whatever it is, a prayer or a promise to that particular king or that particular group of people, and we'll lift that out and we'll say, this belongs to me. This belongs to me. When in fact, it may not belong to you at all. It may belong to a particular group of people back then, it may belong to an individual back then. It may be spoken directly to a small group of people, but it certainly doesn't belong to you except to inform you what happened in the past. For instance, I'll give you an example of this. I'll never forget I was over at a house one day and there was a lady 
whose husband had dementia. Now, she had this idea that the Bible was a talisman, and so she had scripture hanging up all over the house. And she would make her husband read these Bible verses. And she believed that in reading these Bible verses, he would retain his mind, or at least get some back, and so on. And uh, so while I was over there, I asked her, I said, um, tell me why you believe uh, in the practice that you're having your husband engage in. And she opened up to that place where Jesus sent out the 72 uh, all over Judea and gave them power to heal and so on. And she said, right there is, is why I believe what I believe and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I said to her, to her I said, you realize that that is not to you, that is to the 72 that Jesus sent out. The 72 that Jesus sent out, this is a story about the 72. This is, this is a story. This is not a didactic portion of scripture that's instructing you what to do. It's telling you about what they, the 72 did and how that fits in the redemptive historical uh, situation. And she just looked at me like I had two heads that she couldn't believe that what I was saying was true. And yet, that's oftentimes the way many people read the Bible. They open it up and they believe, that's for me, that's a promise of God for me. Now, the whole book of the Bible is to us, and it's authoritative and all of that, but not every part of that book is to us in the way that we have a tendency to think it is, okay? And that's why we need to learn how to study the scriptures. For instance, right, remember the, the prayer of Jabez? Everybody made a big deal about the prayer of Jabez? Um, you know what I'm saying? Somebody made a lot of money on the prayer of Jabez. But the prayer of Jabez was in a historical book written to a very specific person and group of people. And, uh, and oftentimes, we just totally miss out on that. Somebody makes a lot of money on us because we so long to have a magic talisman-like prayer that we can pray and get our land and get our wealth and get everything we want, and it'll be all great. And that's not the way the Bible is meant to be read, and so many people are disappointed as a result of that uh, kind of reading. Yeah? Well, it's easy to get things out of context. Well, and that's, what a, that's my point. You do get out of context, right? But, but this is the thing about it. Um, with the Bible, it's easy to get it out of context because you immediately start, and, and, this, is, and this is a good assumption. This is a good place to begin. You immediately think to yourself, this is God's whole book letter written to me. And there is a sense in which that's very true. This is God's word written to me for my comfort, for the church's comfort, church's comfort. And as, as I am part of the church, written for my comfort, and so on. And it's written to preserve the truth. And yet, and yet, you know, when uh, we read, when we read about Jesus healing Jairus' daughter, right, a lot of people will take that as a promise that God will heal my daughter. In it, right? You see, that's the point. God, Jesus will heal my daughter in the same way he healed Jairus' daughter. Well, he, you know, if your daughter is in Christ, she will be healed on the great and final day. 
And I don't want to take anything away from what God can do in the present moment. He certainly can heal. But that story is not a promise that he will heal your daughter in the same way he healed Jairus' daughter, right? That's the idea. And uh, so we need to be careful with that. I love this because these are three great examples of private interpretation. The woman, her understanding of that scripture, the Jabez prayer, and the uh, the one you just mentioned. Sure. Jairus' Jairus, daughter. Their whole denominations built on taking those Jairus' daughter stories. So so that's why I walk against private interpretation. Yeah, but anything is private interpretation, right? Any. I mean, I, 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 I mean, even even the magisterium's interpretation is a private interpretation of the, of, of the Pope. It's just now codified not, for the whole church. I'm not talking about the Pope, as we would have to say, or the magisterium. I'm just saying the church has determined over time how to understand, how to, even these rules. These rules don't come out from somebody privately. I mean, people have agreed to these rules. Well, I mean, people have agreed to language rules, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, grammar is descriptive, more right? But it's a community thing rather than a private thing. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, but there are ways of reading that are communal, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and that's what I'm. And you, you're. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying these are three examples of private interpretation. Yeah, and what makes them wrong? Maybe the woman is right for those things on the wall, and we would have to say no. This is not the way the Christian community has understood this. I think in I think the church in the main, the evangelical church, it, it is viewed as right. For instance, there wouldn't have been so many sales of the prayer of Jabez book if people didn't believe it's right. I agree. I, I don't want to get sidetracked on this. No, no, no. I felt like you you burned me pretty bad initially. So I was trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I really, well, I, I actually think this is really good because it because I think you're right, and I think. This is, I think it's highlighting the need for something like this. Go ahead. I just, you know, it's funny, I'm just a total sidebar. In my work with nonprofits, I work almost exclusively with women administrators. That's what all nonprofits have kind of become overly laden with women. Women would not have this exchange. Well, I mean, we're torching, women don't torch each other openly. I mean, oh, openly, right. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all under, you know, it's all under the surface. And uh, so they would never have this, well, you know, you're yeah. an idiot. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> 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 I'm talking about. This is an absolute pleasure. To be well, just for the public record, Ted Wood is not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I highly esteem Ted Wood. I didn't think so either, but I just learned that he has a very sensitive consciousness. <laughs> that's why, hence the, that's why I, I'm trying to boost him up. Use your outside voices because our handheld mic isn't working. Okay, go ahead. Um, Jeff, um, yeah, and, and you see, like, uh, to Ted's point, more about all the denominations, you see the denominational disagreement when you start um, interpreting scripture the way that you said. For example, how many times have you heard uh, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit right. and uh, Pentecostal denominations? Well, you know, it happened that way in Acts 2 or 3. So that's normative for the rest of the church. Right. right. Amen. Yeah, and that's, and that, you, you know, that's an even bigger issue, right, Don, is what you raise is um, how do you fit the book of Acts into the experience of the church, Right. right? 
And, and again, that's a... And, and confusing didactic uh, or doctrinal teaching with narrative yeah. can be very dangerous. Yeah. Right, right. Like a Judas, uh, you know, uh, Judas went and hanged himself, go and do likewise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, but, you know, we say those things, th- kind of things, but, but really that raises, that raises the question, <clears throat> what, what, is, what is normative when it comes to like a historical portion? What's normative and, and what's occasional, right? What is, how do we understand that this particular narrative is a narrative that not only describes and is applied to the ancient church, but also is applied to us today, and in, and in the same way, um, versus it being occasional and it describing something that was particular in the ancient church, um, and so helps us to be informed about what happened in the past, rather than helps us to be informed about how to live in the present. So there's there. There are questions like this that are really important and and they can't be taken for granted because it's like it's it's like uh our brother Don just said um too often we uh we just find ourselves um gravitating toward what we think to be right and it may not actually be right when we think about how to interpret something. I'm afraid you're gonna move on We've already talked about the rules. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. The scripture doesn't really lay out the rules like you are, right? That's more of a tradition within the community. I mean, the apostles didn't go to the next generation of believers and say, okay, this is how you read the Old Testament. They didn't even have the New Testament. So, well, before that, who. I think what you're saying is important is how do we come to that? I think before we get to the rules, we need to think about we need to think about basic concepts. So so for instance, let's ask let's ask you know, this is this is one of those things where I'm wetting your appetite and sick. You did. You, you, you did. You salivating yet? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So what we need to do as we approach uh, the rules. And, there, and there, I think there are rules. What we need to do is we need to ask, basically, what does an interpreter do? What are we doing when we engage interpretation? Um, and the first thing that we need to do is realize that we have content in front of us. This book has a lot of content, 66 books worth of content. And there's a lot of stuff packed into this book. Um, I, want you to, I want you to think about it. Uh, like this. Yeah, that's not content in the Bible. <laughs> oh, it's a picture of Lego instructions. <laughs> yeah. So there's a biology book, Don. And there's a theology book, a book on knowing God. And so all of those books have their own content, right? So the one tells you how to put together a Lego, uh, a pile of Legos. The other one tells you how to understand God's general revelation around you. And then another one talks to you about how to understand God, who he is, and and what he's done on our behalf, that kind of thing. Each of them have a different content. And when you look at each one of them, you would be surprised, for instance, if 
you found an appendix or even a chapter in J.I. Packer's book with Lego instructions in it. Right? <laughs> you, would be, you would think that this is a problem with the printer um, and so on. But um, the, the fact of the matter is when we come to the Bible, 66 different books, there are different genres in this book. And that's, that, again, that's what I've been saying. So for instance, you're going to find historical narrative here. You're going to find didactic portions, teaching portions, letters, as it were, epistles. You're going to find prophecies. You're going to find apocalyptic. You're going to find those kinds of different, uh, different genres in this one book. And so in that sense, it makes it a little different than a book we might pick up and read. Um, we typically pick up one book of one type of genre expecting that genre, but the Bible is not that. And so we have to realize that this is a book with a variety of different uh, content in it. So that's first. Oh, I forgot Pilgrim's Progress. Who can forget Pilgrim's Progress? All right. The second thing is, so that's first, we have content. The second thing is, wow, those are nice shoes. Mike, I just pay attention to that. Those, those, are, those are nice. I didn't, uh, my eye just caught them. Right? Uh, so, uh, meaning is the, is the second thing. So we've got content, but now we've got meaning. And what is meaning? The meaning is, and to put it simply, what the author intended to say. Now, that's really important, I think, because uh, today we've got what's called uh, reader response, and we've kind of migrated away from what the author intended to say, and, you know, literary critics are engaging in now, what do I think this text says? Mm -hmm. That, uh, that, that, for instance, meaning, meaning is no longer in possession of the original author. It is no longer, as it were, his text. Meaning now resides in the reader. So it's a reader response. And, um, and, and oftentimes, we would, uh, we would, for instance, uh, look at a document that's being read that way, and we would be really offended that it's read that way, for instance, if some Jane, you know, uh, Jane Austen buff found some feminist reading uh, Jane, uh, Jane Austen and reinterpreting it with feminist tendencies, you know, somebody who has a, a, a deeper appreciation for conservative values in Jane Austen might really be upset with that. Um, and yet, that we need to face the fact that that's often the way the church reads the Bible, as, as, as if it were reader response. So we don't ask the question, what did the original author intend to say? We ask the question, what does this text mean to me? And that would be, that would be a way of, of doing exactly the thing that we might criticize liberals for doing in other contexts. And, and we need to realize that that's what we do. For instance, I can I'll tell you this, this is what happens in the Reformed Church oftentimes. In uh, when, you, when, we, when we talk about the Constitution, one of the things that we talk about is going back to the original intent of the founders of the Constitution. What did they mean? And, and we know that in our present day, 
the Constitution is reinterpreted in light of European law, or sometimes it's disregarded altogether, but when it is interpreted, it's reinterpreted in light of present values. And we get all up in arms. But for instance, when you take the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, uh, or any other confession uh, uh, that's uh, 500 years old, oftentimes that confession gets used. In other words, it gets disconnected from the past and it gets reinterpreted and so used by the church. And that's why today, for instance, Chad Van Dixhorn has been trying to get us back to, tie us back to, with regard to the Westminster Confession anyway, tie us back to the historical meaning of the Westminster Confession. So, so for us in the church, that's good. Why? Well, because at least we understand this is what this original document meant by its original authors. Now, we may, we may have reason to disagree with that. For instance, I'll give you a for instance. For instance, the, uh, the Westminster Divines talked about the fact that uh, the law, they talked about what's called the laws of consanguinity. In other words, uh, if, uh, if I'm, say my wife dies, then I'm not allowed to marry her sister if she's available. Why? Well, I wouldn't be allowed to marry my own sister, and so the laws of, uh, the laws of familial proximity apply to my wife's side as well. That's a law of consanguinity. It was believed back in, in, that, in that time by the reformers. Not so much today, right? Um, there are some who still believe uh, that the laws of consanguinity ought to hold, but very, very, very few people. John Murray from uh, Westminster Seminary back in its heyday, believed that, wrote an article uh, on that very topic. But my point is that today we would say, um, okay, that's the original meaning, the original intent of that, but we don't believe that today, okay? That's an example of uh, something having an original meaning, and yet us, that's an easy one, really, but us not believing it today, or us, us. And I just following up on that, it's the way you find out about what the founding fathers meant in the Constitution, or in the Westminster, or what I'm thinking more particularly what Thomas Cranmer was thinking about when he was writing the book of Common Prayer and the Articles of Religion. You go back and you read other things that they were writing. Yeah. So what do they mean by this word? Well, let's see what else they said about it. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, yeah. I think that's what you always have to do. Always. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to get ahead of you, but um, would that apply, for example, if you're reading something in the Old Testament? Um, and uh, well, does that apply to us today? Well, not necessarily. Would would that be that same kind of um, uh, thinking which you were talking about uh, in the, the original intent? Yeah. When you think about, for instance, the Old Testament prophet speaking to uh, maybe. Judah in the south, or maybe Israel in the north, he's speaking, his intent, as he's the prophet of God, is to speak to them, right? And if we read it and say, <clears throat> what does that mean to me? Then we've divorced it from its historical context, and we completely, having severed it from its historical, apply it to us. Yeah, well, I was thinking more in terms of like, for example, the Old Testament dietary law or something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, those do apply to us, Don. No, I'm just kidding. I can see the look, can see the look on his face. Okay. There were different kinds of family. Because you, you yeah. hear people today say, 
Well, how can you condemn homosexuality when the Bible says that, you know, uh, uh, if you have two different kinds of fabric, that's an abomination. Well, that, that, that kind of goes to what you were talking about. Right, um, right, there. yep, yep. Or David's relationship with Jonathan. I mean, it could yeah, be yeah. yeah that's right. But this is the part where it gets difficult, right? Because you say that whatever fancy word that you use about marrying your sister is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, that one. Yeah, so we look at that like, that, that's not important. Or then you have a dispensationalist, and that's where all of this comes around. And you're, well, you're just picking and choosing. So this mm -hmm. is quite as easy as you. Yeah, and I think this is where... Like, for instance, one of the things that we need to do at the, at the outset is understand these basics. So what are, regardless of whether you're a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian or person sitting in the pew, what our objective is, is to realize <clears throat> there's, there's content and this content has authorial intent or authorial meaning. And so we're trying to get back to that, that meaning of the author. Now... That leaves us yet to talk about the rules as to how to interpret that kind of literature to get us back to the authorial intent. But it seems to me that one of the foundational building blocks of any, of any study of the Bible is, that, is authorial intent becomes super important. Go ahead. Could that authorial, authorial intent and dispensationalist belief to most... Well, so... so well, I mean, and so that's, that's I mean, the, the question is, right, um, when you begin to put these building blocks in place, will sometimes our rules will actually show themselves to be problematic. But, but until you put the building blocks in place, then, then the rules look like, hey, this is great, you know? I'm just applying the rules. But, wait, but then when you ask yourself, well, wait a minute, what, what about these building blocks? Sometimes the rules shatter on the blocks. And that, that's what I'm saying is sometimes just putting the building blocks in place help us to sort of cut through some of, some of wade through some of the weeds to begin with. That, that's not to say that there won't be difficulties in the end, because there will be. But as soon as we start, as soon as we start a, applying so you know, sort of building the building, we'll, we realize that you know how it is. You can sort things out pretty quickly and easily in the beginning, and then you get to the real problems. And those might be the areas in which we allow grace. Well, we should allow grace, and in some of those areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But even yeah. to your point there about what the author intended to say. How do we determine that? Well, that, that could be complicated too, right? Well, that's what we have to, we just, what we have to do first is agree on the, the fact that the author had an intent. Okay. So for instance, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe that the objective is to get back to the author's intent, we've lost, then, then you're, you've cut the text off from history and you can make it say whatever you want. Right, okay. Yeah. So. Okay, so, um, uh, I think that's, um, you know, self-explanatory. You know, think about it like this. If I left my wife a Lego instruction and flowers, 
she would think I was quite a romantic. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so when you think of meaning, think of intention. What did the author mean? So that's first. Um, how about understanding? Understanding is a correct grasp of the author's meaning. If I understand, then I have a correct grasp of the author's meaning. So I've, I've got content. I've got, I've got content. I've got, um, I've got meaning. And now I've got understanding. And understanding is a correct grasp. Now, as soon as we get into understanding, this is where, this is where I think things begin to, we, uh, we start to realize how, how difficult this is. I'll give you a couple of uh, illustrations. Um, there are implications <clears throat> when we begin to understand. So implications are inferences deduced from the text which the author may or may not have intended. Um, so for instance, you remember Mikey? This is a picture of Mike Davis when he was young, Don. He's, uh, they used to say, you know, Mike didn't like anything, right? Mikey didn't like anything. And then they pushed this bowl of life cereal in front of him, and he likes it. Mikey likes it. Do you still like it, Mike? Absolutely. So uh, the idea is, the idea, my point is that the, the boys made an inference on the basis of evidence. Now, their inference, their conclusion on the basis of what evidence they used was wrong. But our inferences may be right. They may be wrong, but they may be right as well. I'll give you an example of this. Ephesians 5.18. Um, it's a principle that has to do with wine, but it involves later types of alcohol. For instance, if somebody came to me and said, Pastor, I am intoxicated, but I am not breaking Ephesians 5.18 because I've got Jim Bean in me. <laughs> right? And they said, I'm not breaking it because Paul didn't know about Jim Bean. <laughs> you know, he was talking about wine, so I'm not breaking the commandment. Well, in fact, you are. There's a, there's a, you know, you can make an inference to say that Paul's not just talking about first century wine, but he's talking about, you know, malt whiskey and talking about drugs and whatever other thing intoxicates a person. And uh, then there's significance. Significance. Significance is how the reader responds to the meaning of the text. How the reader responds. Now we're getting into uh, how, do, how do I respond? How do I respond to this text? Um, this is where it becomes appropriate, right? I've, st I've studied the, uh, the content, the meaning. I've, I understand it. I, I've made some inferences and so on. And now I'm getting into the significance of it. And, and it's at this point that I interpret it. And interpretation is simply the expression, the verbal expression or the written expression of my understanding of the author's meaning of the text, of the author's meaning of the text. My, my interpretation is not, is not my meaning of the text, what the text means to me, the text does have significance to me. But the text has significance to me as I've been able to understand authorial intent. In other words, for instance, 
its significance to me may not necessarily be that this promise is for me. Its significance to me is that my God made this promise to his people at this point in time, which led to my salvation, right? But that promise is a promise to those people in the past, which has implications uh, for me by way of that promise coming to fruition, which led to the next and so on. That's the idea. So that's interpretation. And what's the point of every interpretation? Sig, Sig was uh, totally forecasting me on this. The goal of the process is Luke 24, 27, and 44. And that is that all scripture speaks of Christ, right? Why? Because Christ is preeminent in the scriptures. He is the one who came to reveal the Godhead to us. He's the one who came to accomplish our salvation. It's, him that, it's in him that we have light and life. And so he is preeminently the whole goal of the scriptures. And, and it will do us... Uh, so, somebody have that? Luke 24, uh, 27 and 44. Do you have that? Uh... And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. In verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay. So, um, so I think uh, I'll end there. And then, do you have any questions before? Yeah. I just, I just, this, just thinking about the interpretation that was A, B, C, D, E. A lot of folks will say, oh, it's just a matter of interpretation. We have different interpretations. It's a bigger issue than that because it starts off with content, meaning, understanding, implication, significance, and then you get to interpretation. Yeah. So it's just not a matter of two people having different interpretations. Do they have different content? Do they have different meaning? Different understanding? I mean, it just, this is a more complex question I, yeah. yeah, absolutely right. And, and so by the time you get to interpretation, you're not explaining, you're, you're not even explaining what, what the text means to me, right? You've already, you've already learned what its significance is for you. What you're now explaining is the author's intent. Yeah. Uh, two, two things. Uh, number one, uh, how, how you, uh, what you think about the Bible going in is going to affect your interpretation. That's right. If you, if you believe that it's just a book uh, written by some man, you're going to interpret it one way. Dispensationalists, you know, with their view, or covenant theologians, with their view, you know, are going to interpret it another way. Uh, so that's important. And then the second thing I would say is, um, I would recommend highly a book by R.C. Sproul called Knowing Scripture. Uh, he's the exception. He is a reformed man who uh, um, talks about uh, how to study the Bible. And I think it's a very user-friendly uh, book for anyone uh, who uh, wants to uh, be introduced to that whole thing. It's written in a way that you know, anybody can understand it. That's a terrible book. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, you're right. That's an excellent book. Um, I, I actually, uh, it, that's a, I, I'm glad you said that because I, I, uh, I would recommend that you read that book if you want a book to read along with uh, it, over the next four weeks. If you're interested in something to supplement what we're doing here, that's a great book to read. Um, I actually had my seminarians read that book 
as it's a it's a lower level book, but when you're trying to communicate things in a in a in a popular way, you can't beat it. It's a great book, and I don't mean lower level in the sense that it's not valuable, doesn't have academic value or anything. It does. It's just put in a it's put in a Sproulesque kind of way, a very popular expression of technical concepts and so. Knowing it's called, scripture. yeah, knowing scripture. Yep. Yeah. Scroll, yeah. So grab that book if, you, uh, if you'd like to read something. Let's pray and we'll close out. <laughs> Father, thank you for this day, for the time you've given us, and thank you for your word, which is your inscripturated word uh, to us. Thank you that you both preserve your truth in it and that uh, you propagate your truth through it. Thank you also that you use that book to comfort us, your church. We ask that you'll bless and keep us. We pray that you'll give us minds to understand. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you'll do this for not only our good, although we need it, we pray as well that you'll uh, do it for your own glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.